0: We are in a series in the book of Mark, and the series is called Step Into God's Story. And just kind of a recap from where we've been, uh, we started a couple weeks ago. Steve first talked to us about how do we step into God's story. And the way we step in, we, we encounter the person of Jesus. Not just the idea of Jesus, but the actual person of Jesus. And then we respond to him by doing what he says, In Mark 1, repent and believe the good news. And then last week, we heard just a day in the life of Jesus, what it is like to live and walk in the power and authority of God. And so that's where we've been. And and today we're picking up in Mark chapter 2. Just to set the scene for you a little bit, we're still very much on the front end of Jesus' public ministry. He hasn't even called all of his disciples yet. There's starting to be a buzz. People are starting to know his name, but really, there are only a few people who are like committed followers at this point. And we're also in a place called Capernaum. Capernaum is this uh, uh, his home base for ministry in northern. Embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just help you out here. This is my wife, Colleen. <laughs> Am I good? Am I? Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, we are in a, a place called Capernaum, which is Jesus' home base for ministry um, in northern Israel. And the thing that I think is, is helpful to know about Capernaum is that it's this little fishing village, and it's also a, a key military outpost for the Romans. Um, so, so what that means, I, I think we can take it that Capernaum is a place for the marginalized. We've got these kind of poor backwoods fishermen, people like Peter, and we've also got these sellout Jews who are working alongside the Romans, people like Matthew. And this is the place where Jesus anchors his ministry. Among the poor and uneducated, among tax collectors and traders. And it's also to these same people that Jesus first reveals himself to be God. See, a Up to this point, people were beginning to see like, oh, Jesus is this powerful preacher. Jesus is a miracle worker. But what we see next and what we're going to see today is that Jesus for the first time is going to be like, I'm not just a powerful preacher. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm actually God. And the way that he first demonstrates his godness is in an act of forgiveness. And that is so amazing and telling and I do want to get into it, so if you have a Bible, please open up to Mark chapter 2. It's way to the right. Mark chapter 2, and God, I pray that you would do it. You're the one who has to do it. Your word is power, so speak to us, God. So Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. And God, I do just pray that you would bless your word to us today. <clears throat> okay, have any of you ever heard of a guy named Chuck Colson? Chuck Colson was one of the most <laughs> one of the most infamous political figures in American history. He, he was actually called the evil genius of an evil administration. He was Richard Nixon's hatchet man, that was another one of his nicknames. Um, This guy was responsible for threatening whistleblowers and he was in charge of Nixon's enemies list and he was a key player in Watergate. And at one point Colson said that he would run over his own grandma to make sure Nixon got reelected. This guy, he played very dirty, he played very dirty and after Watergate, by the time he was facing arrest, uh, he was this hated, hated man. In America. And it was 1973, his life totally falling apart. Just a broken man, totally lost, alone, and just defeated about his sin. And while he was facing arrest, nobody wanted to come near him, but a couple guys reached out. One guy reached out and gave him a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Excellent book, recommend that one. And another person reached out, somebody who had actually been one of his political enemies. He reached out and invited him into his prayer group. And between those two little acts of mercy, those little acts of faithfulness, Coulson met Jesus. And as Jesus does, he just massively overhauled his life. And Coulson wrote about this time, he wrote, the real story was that God had reached down to me even in my disgrace and shame, and revealed himself as the one who forgives and makes new. He did end up going to prison, but prison was really redemptive for him. Immediately getting out, he started a nonprofit called Prison Fellowship. Maybe you've heard of it. I think it's the biggest prison nonprofit in the country, if not the world, and they're all about rehabilitation and justice, and they're also about showing grace and forgiveness to the people that society considers the worst of the worst. And, and today, Prison Fellowship shares the gospel with hundreds of thousands of people every year. And the point is, this guy was who was so broken and so hated and by his own admission, so far from God, he had an encounter with Jesus where he was forgiven. And that changed everything about his life and some of us know what that's like. And then it ended up changing so many other lives too. And Colson's is just one story that I could tell you about somebody who did horrible stuff, who was then transformed when they encounter forgiveness in Jesus. I could tell you about Johnny Lee Clary, Imperial Wizard of the KKK, who surrendered to God and then started an anti-racism ministry. Or maybe you've heard of Bashir Muhammad, an Al-Qaeda, Nusra fighter who fell under the love of God and was born again or the Apostle Paul, who tried to kill every Christian he could, every Christian he could find until God found him and made him his messenger to the Gentiles. I could tell you those stories, but I wouldn't want to only tell you those stories like, oh, oh, the politicians and the KKK and Al-Qaeda terrorists, like we, we know who the real sinners are because I'm also talking about just like regular people who get canceled because they say something stupid on Twitter. People who don't even like to gossip, but they just get caught up in it. And I'm talking about myself, who has been a liar and selfish and a hypocrite and and worse things than that. What do all of these people have in common? They all were dead in their sin, and then they encountered Jesus and were totally forgiven and totally transformed, and maybe Jesus is changing them slowly, day by day, or for some of them, he is changing them radically in, in a single moment. I'm talking about people who are forgiven, and Jesus is ready and eager to forgive you too. And so our text today, Mark 2, is about broken people encountering Jesus. Jesus Heals the paralyzed man, heals his body, heals his soul, heals his relationship with his father. And that's what I want to talk about today and three, three kind of moves to our message today. Recognizing the rupture, receiving redemption, and then our response. Rupture, redemption, response. And just before we get too deep into it, We are talking about the basics today, the basics of sin and repentance and forgiveness. And for people in the room who are not followers of Jesus, first of all, I love you. And I'm not just saying like, oh, Christians are supposed to say stuff like that. Like, I love you, I love that you're here and this message is for you and it's good news. And I just pray that you, I pray that you would be able to hear this through the lens of the man in this story. You don't need anything that I've prepared. You just need the Lord to speak to you, and so I just pray that you would be listening for that and that he would do that. Please, Jesus. And then for all of us in the room who are Christians, who already follow Jesus, this message is for you too, and your lens, I pray, would be that you are already totally forgiven. You just are. Like, you're not a slave to sin anymore. The very first time that you experienced forgiveness, you were forgiven completely forever for everything you've ever done and for every sin you might commit in the future. And part of our lens is that we are still called to repent. And why is that? Because even though we're no longer slaves to sin, we still deal with the side effects and the gravity of sin in our world. Still heal or hurt people. Still deal with pain. Still press through weakness and wrong. But we don't repent now because we're not already forgiven. We repent from the place of forgiveness and. That's, what I want us, that's the lens I want us to have, that we're hearing this from a place of being totally forgiven already, and we repent now not in shame, but just in joy and confidence as sons and daughters of the King. And I say all this, I'm such the disclaimer person, like i have all put all the disclaimers on it, but, but I say it because I don't want anybody who has already put faith in Jesus to come away and be like, wait, am I forgiven? The answer is yes, you are. And I don't want anybody who hasn't put faith in Jesus to come away thinking like, wait, can I be forgiven? The answer is yes, you can, and that is what I desire, and that is what the Lord desires. Okay, so rupture, redemption, response. The starting point of our passage is that everybody wants to see Jesus. Jesus has been announcing good news and with authority, Mark says. And people were amazed at his teaching and he is casting out demons. He is healing people left, right, and center. And everybody wants to get a glimpse of this Jesus. Everywhere he goes, it's just standing room only. And when that happens, who gets left out? To be paralyzed in Capernaum would have made you the marginalized of the marginalized. In the first century, if you were paralyzed, the thinking was that you must have done something so terrible to be cursed like this. And if something bad happened to you, it was, it was some kind of punishment for something you did. So for the paralyzed man, it wasn't just that he couldn't fit in in society and couldn't hold a job and couldn't go to the temple and maybe wouldn't get married and all these things. On top of his embarrassment and shame about that, he and everybody else in the room would have thought this guy was a filthy, rotten sinner. And the way that he shows up in this story is not, not helping too much. If we go to verse three, some men came bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof of Jesus uh, uh, above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat the man was lying on. So I just want you to imagine for a second that you are being lowered from the ceiling right now. Probably every eye in the room is going to be on you and not in a good way. Like you are a distraction. You might be some kind of show off. You are an annoyance. And there's probably like dirt and debris falling on all of us. At this time, the roofs in Capernaum were made of mud and straw. So there's just mud falling on people. There's mud falling on Jesus. And then everybody can also see that you're, you're paralyzed. And so with all of this baggage, sick and feeling guilty and probably embarrassed, this is how he is showing up to Jesus. He is the absolute fringe of society at this moment. And the point is, he is in a state of rupture. There's a rupture in his body, but there is also rupture in his relationship with God. And I want to submit to us that we all come to Jesus like that, whether we can admit it or not. Because we were all, and some are, in a condition of brokenness and weakness and ruptured relationship with God. And We all have had things that we wanted to keep hidden, all had pain, all dealt with things that plague our bodies and our minds and our emotions. And the paralyzed man's life, his whole life, would have been defined by this brokenness The hardest hardest thing in his life is what was shaping his identity. Is that the case for any of you? I want to tell you, it does not have to be. We need to start off by recognizing what the paralyzed man knew so well that he couldn't fix himself and that he needed to seek out or be found by this Jesus. Take a second to pause and say something that I just think is very important. Even though the paralyzed man and, and most of the people in Capernaum would have thought that his paralysis was due to his personal sin, Jesus did not think that. Jesus did not think that, and, and we shouldn't think that either. In fact, in John nine, there's a story where Jesus meets a blind man, and his own disciples ask Jesus like, "Whose fault is it that he's blind? Was it his own sin that made him blind, or was it his parents' sin?" And Jesus says, "It wasn't due to anybody's sins." It's due to the brokenness in the world. And obviously, obviously, sin causes real-world consequences for for us and for other people. But it is the general condition of sin in the world, what in theological terms we call the fall, the fallen nature. That's the root of all brokenness in the world. And I think it's really important just to, to set that up right there. And the point is, Before we become Christians, we all come to Jesus from that place of sin and of rupture. Some of us do not like to talk about sin because it sounds really negative. And because as Christians, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. We live in a place of victory. 100%, I'm like, yes, we do preach that. And also, it is... It's so important to be able to talk seriously and vulnerably and from the victory about sin. And why is it important? It's important, A, because Jesus and the whole New Testament talk a lot about sin. And they do it to point us to Jesus, who is the sin killer. And it's important to talk about sin because it leads us to dependence on God. It leads us to that realization that we can't fix ourselves talking about the badness of sin magnifies the goodness of salvation. And honestly, salvation only makes sense if you know what you're saved from. And then acknowledging sin points us to holiness, which, P.S., is not just obedience for obedience sake. Holiness is actually good for you. Like, it's a blessing to you. So I just want to put that out there. Not, it's not legalism. Holiness is not legalism. It's so much better than that. Absolutely, Christians cannot wallow in talking about sin because we really are new creations in Jesus. We really are given the full righteousness of Jesus. We cannot be wallowers. But the reality of sin is not something to put into a dark corner and ignore like it doesn't exist. It is because the paralyzed man knew something wasn't right in his body and in his soul that he knew he needed to go to Jesus. And so I think acknowledging sin and brokenness drives us to Jesus. And Mark 2 just paints that picture. And so I want to take a second and do something, maybe it will make us uncomfortable, and I think that's okay. I want to pause and make a public recognition that we have all and I have sinned and fallen short of your glory, God that without you, Jesus, we are dead in our sins. And even in a culture that says, no, you're not, like nobody can tell me what's right or wrong, we're all, everything's good, I think we all know, I think even people who agree with that, like I think we all know that something is not right in our world and in our lives, and you just need to turn on the news, Jesus, Jesus, Yeah, we just need to look at what's going on in Ukraine. We just need to look at what's going on two blocks away with this fire. Things are not right. We also know that so often we have a tendency to center our lives on other things, on money or good things, family, knowledge, when really, God, you alone can satisfy us. You alone deserve that central and supreme place. And so I do just pray that we would acknowledge the rupture in the world, and I acknowledge it now, and and I pray that anyone in the room who is not a follower of Jesus, just so gently, I pray there would be acknowledgement, not in any guilt, but in just so much grace, of rupture in our lives that only Jesus can heal. We need it. And I don't wanna say that and just rush past it, like, oh, I said it. No, like, we need this. We need to acknowledge the rupture. And God, I ask that it would lead us to just dig through the roof in the middle of a crowd to get to you. Yeah. And when that happens, we can move on to the, the second move of our passage, acknowledging the rupture, turns us to the one who redeems. So, verse five. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. With 2000 years of hindsight, it might be easy to be like, oh, Christians forgive. Of course he did, but this is actually a very weird twist in the story. Everybody can see this guy is paralyzed. Everybody has heard that Jesus is this healer. And so it's clear that everybody here is thinking Jesus, you're going to you're going to heal this guy. That's what they're all thinking. But Jesus doesn't. At least at first he doesn't say, you're healed. He says you're forgiven. And the crowd would have been shocked by this. And the teachers of the law would have been offended by this. And the paralyzed man probably was disappointed by this. Because like, no seriously, he's like, I want spiritual experience as much as the next guy, but like I have other priorities at the moment. He's probably just to spell it out to Jesus. Why are you doing this? So why does Jesus do what he does? And this is the banner, okay? He does it because forgiveness Healing in our relationship with God is more important than anything else. And why is that? What's God's forgiveness? God's forgiveness is him not counting our sins. Another way of thinking about sin is missing the mark. Not counting our sins against us. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 5. And I like the definition that a pastor named Matt Chandler gives. He says, forgiveness is being released from your wrongs. Fully, freely, forever. And when that happens, when we're forgiven by God, we then can come into right and restored and spirit-soaked relationship with our Father. And so one more time, forgiveness, healing in our relationship with God is more important than anything else. Just let that like, actually sink in deeply. Everybody in the world has imperfections and weaknesses and circumstances and dark moments from our past. Everybody in the room. I don't need to tell you that. We all know that. And let me also say, every single one of those things matter enormously to God. The God of Christianity, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, doesn't just care about your soul. He also cares about your body and your mind and your relationships. God wants us to bring our material needs. We do this so well in our, like, bring what you need healed, let's do that. Like, let's pray for that. That's what God wants. And this passage is saying none of it is more important than being in that right, restored relationship with your Heavenly Father. Now, Jesus healing or or, or forgiving the paralyzed man rather than healing him, at least at first, this might seem strange enough, but There's something else very strange in this passage. Jesus looks at these men coming through the roof. Verse 5. He sees their faith. And then right away, nothing else happens. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. What's strange about that? What is strange about that is that everywhere else in the Bible that we hear about God's forgiveness, we're called to repent. And here I want to remind us of the lenses that we talked about again. But a few weeks ago, Mark 1, Steve talked about repent and believe. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Acts 3, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The whole Bible tells us that forgiveness accompanies repentance, which Is also a gift from God. It's not like we come halfway with repentance and God comes the other way with forgiveness. Like, God is doing the work. But Mark 2 is weird because we don't see the paralyzed man repent. And you might say, like, interesting. I'll I'll put that away somewhere. But I think this is more than a piece of, like, minor Bible trivia. I think something awesome is happening here. How do we explain this? Two things. First, repentance is not just something we say to God. It is an action. It's something we do. It it literally means turning away from sin and turning toward God. And we see this with the paralyzed man. He showed true faith. It was something visible. Jesus could actually see it. Because the paralyzed man knew something was ruptured in his body and in his soul. So he turns toward Jesus. And maybe he doesn't know exactly what he needs. But he knows he needs grace. He knows he needs mercy. He knows he needs healing that only Jesus can bring. And just that little bit and Jesus immediately grants forgiveness. So their faith, their repentance, was something visible. Is our repentance something just that we say? Or is it visible in how we humbly and vulnerably go to Jesus? And second thing, this is sweet. If we jump down to verse eight, We see that Jesus knew what was going on in people's hearts. Uh, Verse eight is about him knowing what the, the teachers of the law are thinking, but this also applies to the paralyzed man. He knew what was going on in his heart, and I think he knew that there was repentance there. And what that shows, it shows how ready Jesus is to forgive. Jesus is just joyfully and eagerly looking to forgive. It's how much, I just feel like he's looking for any reason, just like the slightest, like, to give it, wants to pour out love, and love on you. Jesus is not stingy in his grace. And I love this from Tim Keller, it says Jesus is aggressive in giving his grace. And I, I think about the story of the prodigal son. If you don't know it, basically it's a son um, acts sort of treacherously, like he asks for his inheritance while his father's still alive. And then he goes off and he, he does, gets into a lot of trouble and then he turns around and he's headed home and his father, the story says, is like waiting for him, just scanning the horizon, watching. And the father doesn't wait for the son to crawl up to him and fall at his feet and give this formal three-part apology. The father is like running out to the son and embraces him and kisses him. He's just rejoicing to redeem you. And I feel emotional because that has definitely been my story. Um, Just rejoicing to redeem you. And I love that. And before he met Jesus, the paralyzed man, his life was defined by his brokenness. His mistakes, his weaknesses were his identity. But Jesus says, No. Jesus says, I don't define you by the worst thing you've ever done. I define you by the best thing I've ever done. Your identity isn't in your guilt, it's in my grace. And your Father doesn't see you in the shadow of your worst mistakes sees you in the light of my mercy. That's what Jesus says. And God can forgive you for the thing you did 20 years ago and he can forgive you for the thing you did last night. The Bible says God throws your sin into the bottom of the ocean. And then it says he forgets about it. So you do not need to be clinging to, you do not need to be remembering the thing that God has chosen to forget. And I would encourage you, like, this has already come out, but don't wait. Don't wait until you're some good, stable place in your life to go to Jesus. You don't wait until you're healthy to go to the hospital. And Jesus says exactly that a couple verses later. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous. What? I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So you said something that you shouldn't have said last week or you looked at porn last night, or you lost your patience this morning, or you were judging somebody right now. Do not wait until that feeling fades away to go to Jesus. Like go now, Romans 5 8, It was while we were still sinners, while we were dead, while we were in the sin. That is when Christ died for us. So when you admit the rupture and you turn even the slightest to Jesus, you don't have to do anything else you can't do anything else. Jesus has already said, you are declared not guilty. You're already accepted. You're already forgiven. You're already loved. And some of us just need to hear that today. So Jesus gives this man the thing that he needs the most in his whole life, right relationship with God, but he doesn't stop there. Go to verse eight. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit It's a very interesting question for Jesus to ask. It is actually easier to say you're forgiven than it is to say don't be paralyzed anymore because it's very, it's much harder to, dis- to disprove. If I say you're forgiven, it's internal, it's, it's hidden. Nobody can come up and say like, oh, I don't think you really are. <laughs> but if I, say, if I say like be healed or don't be paralyzed, it's very easy for someone to come and see like if this person can walk or not. But what is ironic is that for Jesus himself and for only Jesus, it was actually harder to say, you're forgiven. Because being able to say that, him holding the power to forgive, actually makes him the son of God. And him being the son of God means he is going to the cross, where, the, where forgiveness for all of our sins was won. So for Jesus to say to this paralyzed man, you're forgiven, was to say, brother, I'm going to die for you. And notice, Jesus is not, in the first, in in Mark 1, there's a little kind of secrecy, like he tells the demons, don't tell anybody who I am. But in Mark chapter 2, he's not being secretive anymore. When he forgives the man, he's saying, like, I'm actually God. All sins are against me. And then when he calls himself the son of man, The teachers of the law, whose entire profession was to know and interpret the Old Testament, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have known he was referring to Daniel 7, which says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never fail. Jesus is laying it out there. Jesus is saying, I'm God. And he doesn't just say it, he he demonstrates it. The way, to demonstrate that he had the authority to forgive sins, he does just like the most beautiful thing. He already given this man what he needed most. But then just out of sheer love, out of sheer grace, He gives the double blessing. He says, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. It's how good Jesus is. He eagerly gives not just what you need. He cares so deeply about what you desire and he conforms our desires to his. He heals not just souls, but he loves to heal bodies, relationships, and situations. And when we come to Jesus in our place of rupture, he redeems and he pours out just grace upon grace. Okay. Acknowledge the rupture. Jesus eagerly redeems. Now we're bringing it in. What is our response? We see two responses in our text. Resistance and revival. The teachers of the law resisted Jesus. Mark 7, or uh, verse 7. They say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming In the Gospel of Mark, this is the first time that Jesus has been opposed by other people. He was already opposed by the devil. He was already opposed by demons. But now people are getting on him too. And this is the first time. And the first time human beings oppose Jesus is because he forgives somebody. These guys had seen, heard Jesus preach. They had seen him do miracles. But they resisted him. They couldn't see who he was. They couldn't see who he is. I think it is telling that Jesus doesn't get opposition from the people who already knew they were sinners, from the tax collectors and the the peasants of Capernaum. He gets opposition from the people who said they were on the lookout for the Messiah. He gets opposition from the people who thought they were already holy. Have any of us been resisting Jesus? Maybe because we're just in full try hard to do our own thing. Or because we doubt Jesus can really be who he says he is. Or we are not sure if Jesus will do awesome stuff in our life or we think we don't need him to. The teachers of the law felt those things. And so I just want to encourage you, Jesus really is better than you dare to hope. And Jesus' love really is better than every other love. And so I invite you to the other response, the response of the paralyzed man and of the people, the response of revival. In verse 12, he, the paralyzed man, the paralyzed man got up. He took his mat and he walked out in full view of them all and this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. The Greek word for the paralyzed man, getting up, is the same word used to describe Jesus' own resurrection. Just think about that. This is a picture of the resurrection. Jesus tells this man to rise up from his mat, but in forgiving him, he has already guaranteed that he will rise up from death and be with Jesus forever. And the man receives it. He receives the healing of body and soul that Jesus offers, and the people's response is just praise. Just praise, or, or can I say revival? Because when we see who Jesus is and the forgiveness that he works in lives, it just leads to praise. I pray that it stirs revival. And the Bible makes this awesome connection between forgiveness and revival. Second Chronicles seven fourteen: If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... And I think this is what the paralyzed man was doing. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their land, or I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Forgiveness is the partner of revival in the land. And when we turn to Jesus, acknowledging our need of him, the Bible says he will forgive and heal our land. And I just want that, I just want that revival. And just in closing, maybe maybe you've heard of a guy named Charles Wesley, kind of a hero of the faith pastor in the 1700s. But what what you might not know is that even though he was a pastor, he had this massive, cataclysmic crisis of faith. And basically, he was scared that he wasn't saved. He recognized, but he also experienced the rupture and then on Pentecost Sunday, 1738, he encountered Jesus. And he said for the very first time, he was sure that he was forgiven. And then he wrote a hymn about it. And most people think it was, and can it be? And the lyrics here, I think they match exactly what the paralyzed man experienced, what I've experienced, and so many others. And it's, it's old, this is him. Maybe we, I hope some of us have heard it before, but let me just say the, the verse. Oh, I so badly wish I could sing it, but I am not going to do it. Um... <laughs> He wrote, Long, oh, I wish, I wish, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. And my chains fell off. My heart was free. And I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I just love that. Like, that's my story. And the paralyzed man. And Charles Wesley and Chuck Colson and so many others received forgiveness from Jesus. And from that place, Charles Wesley, he and some other guys that you may have heard of went on to lead the First Great Awakening, 25-year revival that spanned countries and continents and brought one in 10 American colonists to become born again Christians for the first time. That's the equivalent today of 30 million Americans coming to Jesus today today for the first time and who says that it cannot happen? And who says that paralyzed people can't walk again? And who says that sinners can't be redeemed? Who says Jesus can't do it all and more and that is how I want us to end today. Just wanna let Jesus, we need you. It has to be you. I pray that you would do it all.